This morning we start John 15. I recently had uh, lunch with Phil Cruz a few weeks ago, and he asked where I was in John. And apparently when he preached through John, it was three years. So you guys are getting off easy, I tell you. It's not going to be three years. Um, and as a result of that, I, uh, this is almost a little too much to chew on in one sermon. So may God have mercy on us um, and mercy on me as I try to squeeze all of this good stuff into a reasonably length sermon. So, uh, first 11 verses of chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so, I, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. May God bless the reading of His Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, as Jesus opened the minds of the disciples in Emmaus, so we ask that our minds would be opened, that we might understand the Scriptures and therefore know Christ more fully and might more fully know ourselves as well. For your glory and for our good, we ask this in Jesus' name. I have to be honest with you. Amy and I have a mixed track record when it comes to fruit-bearing trees. One day I arrived home at our, uh, our home in, in Florida, and I, th- I think our parents had been visiting with us, and I arrived to find a citrus tree in the backyard. Part of me was glad because I like citrus, and I thought the idea of a fruit-bearing tree would be a nice thing, but there was a small problem with this tree in the backyard. And that is twofold, I guess. One is, we had no irrigation anywhere in our property. And secondly, the backyard, where we really didn't spend a whole lot of time, and so therefore it wasn't like the front yard, which Amy would water the flower beds and everything else, and they got plenty of water. The backyard was often a little 
shall we say, neglected. Okay? And so this little tree, every year, well, not every year, but finally, eventually, kind of, these blossoms would show up in springtime, and I would get so excited, fruit, there might be fruit, only to, of course, have that dry season from April, May, and then halfway through June come and completely devastate the tree yet again. And so it was with fear that I left on vacation this year because our new lemon tree had fruit on it when we left. And I was so excited when we got home from vacation to discover there was still fruit on it because this time it's irrigated. Okay, We have learned our lesson. This passage is about fruit. And just as I am excited to receive fruit from my trees, or I will be when it finally happens. Please, Lord, let it happen. Um, Jesus is excited when there is fruit amongst his people. And that's really the context here. He's using, this is the, again, we're talking about the context of discipleship. He mentions that in specific, specifically in this text, that you might prove that you are my disciples, and keep that in mind as we interpret this. But he gives a, an agricultural metaphor for which they would be very commonly uh, used to. It would really connect with them. The big idea this morning is that fruitful discipleship depends upon Christ. Let's start with this, that Jesus is the true vine that gives life and power to his people. He drops another one of those I am statements that are spread throughout John's gospel. There are 10 of them, and this is one of them. So 10, one of those numbers of completion. Uh, But he uses that I am statement that points to his divinity, but also something about his divinity that they and we needed to know. And here Jesus says, I am the true or authentic vine. Now, they were used to Israel being spoken of as a vine or as a vineyard, as we saw in Isaiah 5 from our reading. But it's not just there. We see it as well in Psalm 80, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel, Hosea, many places God's people were called a vine or a vineyard. And it was meant to express to them their privileged place because you take care of a vineyard. And so it it pointed to God's care and provision over his people. And with that came some high expectations. Just like me, God wanted fruit, good fruit, But what we see in almost all of those passages is instead it produced a perverted sort of fruit, bad fruit. And almost all of those passages bring up the element of judgment. For instance, Jeremiah 2, verse 21. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed, How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Hosea 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more its fruit increased, the more altars he built 
as his country improved, he improved his pillars. And so there, there's sort of this perverse fruit of God brings blessing to Israel, but instead of the good fruit of worship and thanksgiving to him, what they do is they begin to worship other gods. And so his goodness to them actually ended up resulting in judgment. And we'll see that in Sunday school sometime in the fall, uh, spring when we get to Hosea. Okay. So what's going on here in, in John 15 is that Jesus is saying that he is the true vine, or to put it another way, he is the true Israel. He is the substance behind these Old Testament shadows. And we've seen that repeatedly throughout John's Gospel. He is the true temple. The living temple. That He is the the Jacob's ladder upon whom the angels ascend and descend to bring the blessings of God. That He is the true bread of heaven. That He is the true One who gives living water to people. And so all of these Old Testament shadows have kind of fallen away in a sense, and we see that they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this is one more of these Old Testament pictures that is fulfilled in Christ. He is the true vine that Israel was supposed to be, but is not. And what he wants them to understand when he talks about this is that he is the vine that gives life to the branches. And you, my disciples, he says, are the branches. And so branches do not exist on their own. They exist only as they are connected to the vine. And it is the vine that gives its life and power to the branches through the sap. They had to recognize this. We need to remember this frequently. Okay, This life that Jesus gives to his people in this image of the vine is also fruit-bearing. He reminds them, apart from me, you can do nothing. In particular, he has the idea of bearing fruit. The, uh, the you can do nothing is that word we find, dynamos. When we think of dynamite, we think of power and powerful. And so life and power come to the branches through Christ who is the vine. Apart from Him, separated from Him, they have no power and they have no life in themselves. Think for a moment of the tree that fell on the other side of the Westminster Annex. Okay? Elder Pixley came a couple Saturdays ago and took off a lot of the big branches, but he left behind smaller branches. And what amazingly happened to those smaller branches between then and now? They went from green to brown because they have been cut off from the the tree. Now, the tree still had roots. That tree was still alive. It was knocked over. But it still would be alive, okay? Until now, the roots have been severed by the crew that came in on Saturday. But separated from the tree, the branches wither and die. 
This is an echo, I think, in some ways of what we see in Philippians chapter 4. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do, well, that's right, somehow my computer double did that. It did it twice. That doesn't mean I can win all athletic contests. Whenever you hear athletes quote that, just go, he's just an athlete. What does he know? Okay. The idea, the context there is that Paul is talking about how he can live in any situation that he lives in by the providence of God. He can live in that situation in a way that brings glory and honor to God, even though it's hard and difficult. But he can't do it on his own. He can only do it in him and through him. To bear fruit. We are told that we have to abide. I'm not excited about abide. Okay? That's one of those words that you kind of go, yeah, abide. What does that really mean? It can also be translated as to dwell or to remain in Christ. And so it is, it is those who remain or dwell in Christ that are able to bear fruit. And if you're like me, this may prompt some questions. Sort of the interaction of systematic theology with the biblical text and things like that makes me wonder, okay, if I'm supposed to remain in him, does that imply that I cannot remain in him? How far can I wander, so to speak, from Jesus? It's not like, I don't know, a spaceman who, who's remain, who remains connected to the ship by a tether. And you know, once that tether is broken, he's in big, big trouble. And he's going to die because he's going to run out of oxygen, right? You know, is it something sort of like I can get so far away from Jesus and I'm okay? What, what's, what's really kind of going on here? I think if we keep in mind what Jesus said about you proving myself, yourself to be my disciple, we have to, in a sense, take this out of salvation viewed from above, election, okay, uh, that kind of stuff, and view it more from below, and therefore looking at the visible church. Because when we look at the visible church, we recognize that there are true Christians and there are counterfeit Christians within the visible church. And so I think if we look at it from this perspective, this helps us to avoid some very bad theology. Okay, And I'm all for avoiding really bad theology. When we view it as the visible church, if we're honest, we recognize that there are people who... Walk away. Now, not just go from one church to another, but kind of say, I'm done with this Jesus thing. Okay? That happens. Not only that, but there are people that we send away. Excommunication. Because of a lack of repentance due to grievous sin. Okay? And so there are people who leave the visible church for at least those two reasons. And that's part of what is, is pictured here that those people, though they may claim to be Christians, are not joined to Jesus and won't bear fruit. How is it 
my other question, I suppose. What does it mean to abide or remain or dwell in Christ? That's why I brought us to Romans in our reading. Paul talks about this. He uses a slightly different image, that of the olive tree. But he uses, talks about the same sorts of things, people being grafted in and removed and all of that, and it all ties to faith. And so we, we remain in Christ as we continue to believe in Christ as He is presented to us in the Scriptures. So you can draw on all of these pictures of Jesus we've seen in John's Gospel. We remain in Him by believing He is those things. Okay? That what He presents to us is true and that we need it. But there's something else that Jesus says here. He says, abide in me and my words abide in you. Faith, in this instance, could be seen as His Word dwelling in us. We're internalizing His Word. Okay, not just memorizing it, but we're believing it. It has a home in us. That's another one of the words that could be translated. You know, dwelling, home. His Word dwells or has a home in us. And so, what we cannot do is disconnect Jesus from His Word. Okay, we, we can't have the Jesus of our own creation, the Jesus of our own understanding. We have to have our understanding shaped by the Word of God so that we are embracing the biblical Jesus because that is the only Jesus that can save us. And so when we read these I am statements in John's Gospel, it's very important that we believe what he says about himself because that is the Jesus we are told to dwell in and who wants to dwell in us. That idea of mutual indwelling that we've hit on the last few weeks. And so Jesus provides his people with life and with power to bear fruit through their union with him and his union with them. Secondly, the Father cleanses us so that we will bear more and more fruit. Okay, he, he reveals something about the Father, and what he reveals complements his role within the, the context of this metaphor. If Jesus is the vine, and he is, then the Father is the vine dresser. He's the one who cares for the vine, who overlooks the vine, tends it. In other words, the Father cares for the branches in order to maximize the vine's fruitfulness. And it's an idea here of managed growth. Okay? He wants to make the most out of this vine. Okay? And the glory of a vine dresser is the quantity and quality of the vine, of the fruit the vine produces. Right? So, he wants to manage the growth of this vine to maximize the quantity and the quality of the fruit. And so Jesus gives, in a sense, here, first, it's a warning. This sounds like good, the Father is the vine dresser. They're probably thinking that's good news. 
But the first thing Jesus says is, is the warning. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The Father removes those branches. Huh. This is a stern warning. The life, they're, they're disconnected, so to speak, from the life-giving sap, which must go to the branches so that they bear fruit and sustain growth. But he's saying that they're being cut off. At the beginning of the, growing, of the, the fruit season, the vine dresser will go and look and see where is, is there fruit on this vine. Okay, where is it starting to grow? And every branch that comes out, or every segment of a branch that comes out that does not bear fruit is going to be snipped. Because there's only so much power. Okay, now the metaphor breaks down. Okay, don't think that I'm saying Jesus is limited in his power. Okay, you know, can't press, just like parables, you can't press the metaphors too far. Okay, but he wants all of the sap, all of the life and power to go to the branches that are producing fruit. He doesn't want them to be wasted on the ones that don't bear fruit. Okay? That's what's going on here. That's what we need to keep in mind. And again, this is the visible church. Okay? We'll get to that again in a few moments. And those that are cut off are then thrown away like a branch and withers. They're just like that pile of branches on the other side of the annex. They are are dead. They could look alive for a little while. If you went, you know, the day after Mike cut those things off or a couple days later, they still might look alive. They'd still look green, but they were as good as dead. They are then gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. This is an unmistakable picture of judgment. And this is an allusion to what we read in Ezekiel 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So there he's comparing the people of Jerusalem to the wood of the vine that has been tossed into the fire for fuel. That's a hard saying. And that's what Jesus is warning here. That the unfruitful people are going to be like the, the former inhabitants of Jerusalem that were given up for firewood, which is what Mike is doing with the tree <laughs> when it dries out. Okay? False disciples, and for them, they just, Judas <laughs> should come to mind. Not that when he says this, but shortly thereafter, when they realize that Judas has betrayed Jesus, he has shown himself to be a counterfeit disciple. Those false disciples do not produce fruit, and they experience judgment. Okay. When uh, we went back to Florida for a wedding, this past June, we drove by the old house. We want to see what the new owner has been doing. And I'll have mercy on him. He's a single man. So 
you know, be patient with him. Um, but we drove by and we're like, wow, look at that. The sago palm I had planted had, was, was growing and it was looking really good. Okay. And that little, we got, one year we bought a little tabletop Christmas tree. Okay. Cause we didn't have it room for a real tree because my house was really small. And so, you know, we planted it in a little planter by our front doorstep, and then it got too big for that, and so we stuck it in the ground in our front yard, and now that little tabletop tree was as tall as the house was. Okay, so those two are doing great. Let's pull a little farther and see if we can see the orange tree. (laughs) It looks about the same. (laughs) This poor tree just deserves to be pulled up and put out of its misery, so to speak. Um, it has not borne any fruit whatsoever. It has not grown. It's, it's about the same size because it just goes through that cycle of no rain. So it has stayed the same. It has not borne fruit. And if, the fa- if God the Father was the owner of that tree as opposed to me, it would have been yanked up and turned into firewood. Now, when we read about this, we cannot take this in isolation from everything else that he's already said in John's Gospel. And he has talked about how that they are in my hand and there is no one that can snatch them from my hand. Uh, that his will, you know, the will, he's here to accomplish the will of the Father in John 6, and that will is to raise up everyone that the Father has given him, and he will do it. And so, is, that's all, of course, about the invisible church. That has to do with election and the application of salvation. And so that idea of the preservation of the saints, that they are secure in the hand of Jesus, and he's not going to lose anyone that has been given to him. Okay, Now let's take that idea of preservation and bring it to this text. And what we see is there's no preservation apart from perseverance okay meaning not you're preserved because you persevere but you persevere because you are being preserved by Jesus Christ okay you are being preserved precisely because his the fullness of him is connected to you in union with him and he keeps you and he works in you and that, so as a result of that, you persevere. You understand the relationship between these things. Okay? And so, those ones that are being cut off are ones that Jesus was not intending to preserve. They were not truly united to him. That's the danger of metaphors. We could use the metaphor to say they really were, and then we have this whole theology of losing your salvation, which goes against what Jesus has already taught us in John's Gospel, and Paul teaches us and throughout many of his letters, okay, that God, who has begun a good work, will bring it to completion in you and Christ Jesus. So, how's that for a few mouthfuls? What is this intended to mean for us? First off, R.C. Sproul notes that 
the danger sometimes of our theology. It seems, he says, that a proper emphasis on the monergistic saving work of God causes us to give no heed to the Bible's call to good works. We must see that while we are justified by faith apart from works, we are justified by faith unto good works. And so when we think about salvation, it is all of grace... It is apart from works, but that does not mean that we rest in the, you know, the celestial lazy boy or barca lounger. But we have to go past Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 to 2, 10 to see that we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus to do good works that He has prepared for us beforehand that we might walk in them. And so the person who has truly been made alive in Jesus Christ does in fact, by the power of the Holy Spirit, walk in those things. And if we're not walking into those things, then we have the warning bells should start going off in our head. But of course, if you're not walking in them, you're deceiving yourself, and so you won't hear the warning bells. That's the danger, I think, in a sense. The self-deception that accompanies sin. But Calvin notes in all of this that believers need incessant culture that they may be prevented from degenerating. And part of what he's talking about there is the fact that sin still dwells in you. And apart from the preserving work of the Father, the the pruning of the Father, you will lapse. Instead of making progress, you'll regress. Very important. And so that is why Jesus says that every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that, uh, that it may bear more fruit. And so there's a, there's sort of a play on words that you lose, uh, cause, you know, we're reading it in English. The word for removes or raises up is basically the same word with a prefix stuck on it for, uh, pruning or cleaning. And so, even the ones that have fruit on them, he trims up a little bit, okay, to make sure that everything is going to go into the growing of that fruit so that it is good fruit, okay? No excess of vintage here. But Jesus reminds them that you were cleansed by the word I have spoken to you, the word which they have apparently received and believed has cleansed them, sanctified them, shall we say. But that doesn't mean it's all done. The Father uses the Word of Christ to continue to prune us to make us increasingly fruitful. He also uses affliction in our lives to prune or cleanse us to make us increasingly fruitful. In other words, There are things in your life that He wants to remove, and He will. Because they are things that make you unfruitful, or less fruitful than you could be. Another way of putting it is, He is more concerned about your sanctification and growth than you are, and that's really good news. Okay? I don't mean that to discourage you. 
in any way, shape, or form. But if you do belong to Him, and if there is some fruit there, praise God, there's going to be more. And He will see to it. This is not a call for you to do something. This is a reminder of what He's doing in you. Okay? We need to remember that this process is not an easy process and often not a joyful process. Okay? That's why that large section of Hebrews 12 is there reminding us not to make light of the Lord's discipline, but to remember that He's treating us as sons, not as enemies when He does this. But there's the goal in mind that we see in verse 11 of that chapter, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so this movement from immaturity to maturity in Christ is going to be painful at times, but his long-range goal is to produce a harvest of righteousness in your life. And so we, we kind of as we move from infancy in Christ to adulthood in Christ, there's a shift that's going to take place within us of, of moving from faith, sorry, from fear and adversity to faith and adversity. Okay. John Newton talks a lot in uh, one section about um, stages in the Christian life, and he really kind of talks about it as, you know, the infant, the child, the adult, and, and how God moves us and what the characteristics of them are like. And one of the things that we see in, in psychology is that idea of image constancy. A baby does not have image constancy, meaning when you leave the room, your baby doesn't know you're there. When you were a baby, that was you. Where's mom? Does she exist? <laughs> Your world is very small. Okay? What happens for a baby Christian? Everything is about what they can see and feel. And so if I don't feel God is near me, I feel God has abandoned me. Where is he gone? And so they live in a lot of fear and a lot of self-righteousness at times. Okay, because their understanding of their sin is rather, you know, very uh, superficial at that point. But God is going to try, is moving to bring us out of that kind of response to one of maturity, which says, more like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. My affliction does not mean that God is against me. My affliction does not mean I've been abandoned, but I've come to really understand that there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That doesn't happen overnight. That happens through a, a series of afflictions and difficulties over time that you learn that He's still there. Okay, And so there, there's this process of maturing that takes place as we go from infant in Christ uh, to adult in Christ. Right? Think of it this way. I'm an adult. I don't always act like it. <laughs> okay? But things that are no big deal to me as an adult send my children into a tizzy. 
It's like the end of the universe is about to take place. Okay? They're children. <laughs> of course they're immature. Of course they don't quite get it. Okay? One day, Lord willing, they will have the emotional intelligence to be, to be able to recognize a big deal from a not big deal so that they respond correctly to whatever the circumstance may be. Spiritually, it's the same way. Okay? As we grow, we recognize this is not a big deal. It's in the Father's hands. He will provide, his grace will be sufficient regardless of what happens. Okay. All right. And so we see that the Father watches over the church both to remove the unfruitful and to cleanse the fruitful. Let's quickly look at my third point, which actually is shorter than the other two. So, and To borrow a phrase from John Newton, look to Jesus. But look to Jesus in prayer and example for joy. Now, we've talked about the sign of life in Christ is fruit, but we haven't really talked about what that fruit is. What kind of fruit should we expect? I have a lemon tree in my backyard. I expect lemons. Uh, I will be very surprised if pomegranates show up. Okay, a, tr a tree produces fruit in keeping with what kind of tree it is. And so what should a Christian expect to produce? Now, it is here that some commentators will go to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and I'm not denying that we should experience the fruit of the Spirit, but I don't think that's the answer in this context. I think Jesus provides the fruit, the answer to the fruit that he's looking for, that he's talking about. First off, he says, if you abide in me, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. And so I think one of the fruit is, oddly enough, this is, you know, you'll have to work with me here, Jesus answering prayer. Now, that's, that's the fruit, okay? Jesus answering prayer, but before that is asking in my name. That requires... Okay, in a sense, I don't, I don't, requires is the bad word, but is predicated upon the fact that we dwell in Jesus, and therefore it is natural, for back of a, lack of a better term, to remember life comes from Him, and power comes from Him, therefore I must ask Him to produce these good things in my life, and I'm asking in particular because His Word dwells in me, and I dwell in Him, According to his word. Now, see, does that make more sense of why the answered prayer is the fruit? We're abiding in him, therefore we're praying to him. And because we're abiding in him, his word dwells in us, and we pray according to his word. And obviously, then Jesus will go, Grant it. So, one of the things that we should look at is are my prayers being answered in a God glorifying fashion? Not a selfish sort of fashion. Because Jesus again qualifies this. My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. 
Father receives glory when we bear a lot of fruit. And so when Jesus answers our prayers, it gives the Father glory. And that's a good thing. But Jesus also continues with the idea of uh, we will also bear fruit as we follow his example of obedience. That idea of we remain in his love. Now, again, if we take it out of its proper context, we, we, we turn this into some sick way of, of gaining God's favor and earning our salvation, and we're not, let's not go there. Because we're trying to keep this in the context of discipleship, not conversion and salvation, so to speak. But what does a true disciple look like? Okay. And we've talked about from uh, Mark Jones's book and the Puritans, you know, God's love of benevolence and God's love of complacency and that kind of stuff. The distinction, so to speak, as Kevin DeYoung talks about, between union with Christ and communion with Christ. And so... What the, the idea here is that love of complacency or that communion with Christ. Okay. The, the Son, as our Redeemer, as our Mediator, obeyed the Father. Okay, this is all part of his argument there. And therefore remained in his love in the same way we as his people who have already been redeemed obey remain in his love, and partake of his joy. His obedience toward the Father is intended to lay forth an example for us, not how to become Christians, but in part how we live as Christians that we will only experience joy, well, not only, okay, let's remove joy. Let's remove only from that. We will experience more joy as Christians when we're abiding in Christ and walking faithfully. Okay, I'm not talking about perfect obedience here because we all stumble every day in thought, word, and deed. Let's remember that. But when we are in willful disobedience, we're miserable. We lack joy. That's what's going on here. Because the life of a Christian is not static. It's dynamic. Your justification is static. Okay? At conversion, boom, you're justified. That's it. You're always justified. Okay, but in terms of your sanctification, it's like the stock market, and those of you who have investments lately have been going, probably sweating or refusing to look at the news because it, right now it's going up and down, up and down, crazy. Our communion with, our union with Christ is set. Nothing changes that, but our communion or fellowship with Christ will kind of go up and down as we trust Him, as we walk in obedience. These kinds of things. If you don't like what I just said, then give me a better interpretation of this text. I'm open. Okay? Um, anyway, I need to press on. 
But we recognize that even the power of obedience, again, comes from the fact that we're united to Him. Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and work for His good pleasure. And so we can only obey because we're connected to the vine. We have the spiritual life we need from Jesus. We have the spiritual power we have from Jesus. And God works in us in such a way that we will walk in growing obedience. Although sometimes that means he has to humble us first. Because we're very prideful people. And so sometimes we have to sin so that we can see who we really are and turn from it. So, his love and his union precede all of this. It's communion or fellowship that grows as we walk in obedience. And what I want you to remember here is that the Father loves righteousness. And so he delights in righteousness. And the Son found joy in obedience. And so, you too should find your joy not only in Christ, but also in obedience. Because it's righteousness. It's good for you. And just as how I will rejoice if my lemons actually come to fruition and they taste good, I'll throw that one out there. He will rejoice over you in your meager obedience. He'll be thankful. I've already gone way too long. So Jesus is the true vine of God to whom we must be united if we are to experience salvation. He is the source of life and power for the Christian. It's humbling to know that without Him, we can do nothing with regard to our salvation. But being united to Him, we will bear fruit that brings glory to Him and the Father. We'll bear the fruit of answers to prayer. We'll bear the fruit of a life of growing obedience. And the Father removes those who produce no fruit from the visible church. He prunes and cleanses those who do so that they will produce even more fruit. So if you're more than a babe in Christ, because we don't expect a whole lot of fruit from a babe now, do we? My kids, when they were one, couldn't do a whole lot. Um, Do you see fruit? Is there evidence of being united to Him? Abide in Christ by faith. And the fruit will come. So, we need to pray. (laughs) Father, this is another one of those texts where it's easy for us to try to avoid the warnings with our systematic theology. Or... Avoid the blessing by our systematic theology. Father, help us to really reckon with the words of Jesus this morning.
help us to continue to grow and bear fruit that brings you glory and honor. Help us to trust you to be at work. This is not about branches working really hard. This is about branches doing what branches do because they're united to the vine. Help us to see that. Help us to trust you and to trust your Son to do that which is good. To do that which is good for us and brings glory to you. We ask this in his name. Amen.